couple weeks ago on, on the theme of conversion. So what we're really asking is, you know, what, um, like what is the process of becoming a Christian? Um, what does it take? What's involved? Um, what makes it beautiful? And, and also what, what makes it hard? And this morning we're going to look at uh, page 387 in your pew Bible, page 387. It's 2 Kings chapter 5. It's the story of Naaman. And uh, I'd recommend actually, that you, if, if you can, to grab a Bible and, and look that up, page 387. We begin with verse 1. Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram, which would be like Syria today. He was a great man in the sight of his master, which would have been the king, and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. So you got the picture here. So Naaman, right out of the gate, is an extremely impressive guy. It says he's a great man. He's highly regarded. He's a valiant soldier. Naaman is a big deal. There's a, there's a clue later on in this passage that he might actually be like the number two guy in the whole kingdom of Aram. But he's got a big problem. Right? He's got leprosy. He's got this terrible disease. It's probably early on for him. But it's the kind of disease that just gets worse and worse throughout your life. And he knows that that's coming. Fortunately for him, verse 2. Bands from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel. And she served Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria. Now the servant is talking about this guy Elisha who... In the, the previous chapters of 2 Kings, we've seen this guy a lot. He's a, he's a prophet of God, a prophet in Israel, uh, and he's done some really impressive miracles. So a few chapters ago, he, he saved a woman who was in this crushing debt. Um, a little bit after that, he, he, he healed a woman who wasn't able to have children. And, and after that, he actually raised a young man back to life who had died. And so she tells her master, like, go to this guy, um, he, he, can, he can cure you of your leprosy. Then verse 4 tells us, Naaman went to his master, that is the, the king of Aram, and told him what the girl from Israel had said. And, and the king replied, by all means, go. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And so Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. And the letter that he took to the king of Israel read, with this letter... I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. So you're following this. Uh, Naaman hears about the prophet, and he goes straight to his own king. That's his first stop, Uh, who's also like his boss, probably also his friend. And he gets basically a letter of reference, but that's not all that he gets. So there's that bit about the gold and the silver and the clothes, and, and scholars are kind of calculate that out, and most of them guess that it's, that stuff is somewhere in the ballpark of worth maybe about $18 million in sort of our money. And I don't, I mean, I guess I don't know how much military commanders get paid, but there is just like, that's crazy money. There's absolutely no way that anybody in the whole kingdom of Aram has $18 million lying around. 
except for one person, the king. And, and so I think what this is hinting at is that not only did Naaman get a letter of reference from the king, but he got a letter of reference. Like, the king opened up the royal treasury and gave this commander $18 million, which tells us something about how well connected, how highly regarded, like, Naaman is a big deal. I promise you, they do not open the royal treasury to the tune of $18 million for just anybody, okay? He's a big deal. So, it says, so he shows up at the palace of the king of Israel, and he gives him the, the letter asking the king to heal him. And verse 7 says, As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes. And he said, am I God? Can I, can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. Now remember, the servant told Naaman to go to see the prophet. Naaman has not done that. He went to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel is like, I have healing leprosy? I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, That's not at all what I do. Um, he freaks out. He interprets this as some kind of threat or challenge or like in some way like the king of Aram is like sticking it to him. And so he freaks out. He, he sees this as a threat. He loses his mind. Fortunately, Elisha hears about it. It's very convenient. So verse 8, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me. And he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. And so Naaman went with his horses and his chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. And, and Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, uh, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry. And he said, I thought that the prophet would surely come out to me and he'd stand and he'd call on the name of the Lord his God and he'd wave his hands over the spot and he would cure me of my leprosy. And then it, like, it dawns on him something else. He's like, and are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? I mean, couldn't I just wash in them and be cleansed? And so he turned and he went off in a rage. So you got the scene, right? So Elisha hears about the king panicking. He calls the king. He's like, king, just send the guy to me. And, and so Naaman goes to Elisha's house, finally. But he doesn't just go, does he, right? So it says he, goes, he goes with all the impressiveness of a guy like Naaman. So verse 9 says he went with his horses and his chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. So here's this. Here's this big deal commander, right? He's bringing his whole entourage from the palace to the prophet's house. He shows up at the door. And, and I don't know what you're picturing in terms of Elisha's house, but what we're almost certainly talking about here is a very small house. Like, I would be surprised if this house has two rooms in it. It's probably just one. This is a really small house. And there's been all this commotion outside. 
And I mean, everybody in town has noticed this big deal Naaman is marching up. I mean, it's hard not to notice horses and chariots and like, I don't even know how you carry like $18 million worth of loot, but like he probably had like all these extra horses or something with him to carry all the stuff that he's bringing. Naaman snuck up on nobody, okay? I mean, they could hear and see this guy from miles away. But who answers the door? It's not the prophet. It's a messenger. And the messenger tells Naaman to go ahead and wash himself seven times in the river. And we read that Naaman went away angry, verse 11. And then verse 12, he went off in a rage. I want to pause a minute. Um, I think there's something we can learn from the story so far. Just to recap, who did the servant tell Naaman to go visit? The prophet. Who did he actually go to visit? Two kings. Two separate kings. When he finally does go and see the prophet that he was supposed to see, he gets all bent into shape because who does he actually end up seeing? Just some messenger. Naaman is an important person. Uh, and when an important person like Naaman gets in trouble, they don't just go to anybody. They go to other important people. Uh, this is a guy with certain expectations. He is used to the best. I mean, Naaman, in a sense, he's on a quest, right? He's on a quest for healing, for some kind of salvation. I mean, it's not, it's not exactly a religious quest, but, I mean, he's trying to set his life right again. And he has some assumptions about what kind of person he should be asking for help. And messengers and servants and slave girls are not exactly who he's used to asking for advice. I think this is Naaman's first problem. Naaman's first problem is that he only wanted to get help from the people he thought were qualified enough and important enough to help someone as qualified and important as him. And this is not crazy, right? So in our world, if you want some insight or some direction in your life, you don't normally go to people who have done worse in life than you, right? Uh, you go to successful people. You go to important people. At least people who are as successful and as important as you. I, you see this even, I'll be honest, you see this when people are looking for churches. Um, uh, I think one of the first things that we do um, is we try to tell um, are my kind of people in this church. Uh, and, and frankly, I mean, we don't say this out loud, but I think, frankly, it's often, it's a social class question. Okay? Are these people as rich as me? Are they uh, used to the same lifestyle as me? Uh, are they, like, as educated as I am? A lot of our first questions, I think, when we're coming to a new church, aren't actually about doctrine. It's not about whether this church is true or right. Instead, we're noticing, are these people kind of on par with us? Are they like us? Naaman wants to get his answers from the right kinds of people. 
from important people. And God keeps, all throughout the story, God keeps sending him answers from the wrong kinds of people. From, from slave girls and servants. It's almost like God is trying to show Naaman that he doesn't operate like the other gods. He's not impressed with your worldly credentials. So, um, you got a PhD. That's fine. You got a big house. Cool. Um, your, your buddy's with the king. That, that's nice. None of that is what is going to get Naaman healed. If Naaman is going to get this healing, he's got to come at it God's way. And God's way is coming through slave girls and servants. And I think when you are used to things a certain way, it's not easy to change like God is trying to get Naaman to change. Now, I've been thinking about it a little bit this week in terms of uh, politics right now. I'm sure you're all just dying to talk more about politics. Um, you know, they're talking about how there's no facts anymore, right? Um, like, it's like there's Republican facts and there's Democrat facts. And everyone's talking about fake news stuff. And, and I think what's happened is we're all just out there and we're looking for stories or we're looking for facts that confirm what we already assumed about the world. And, and we're all doing it. And so we've got sort of these elaborate sort of preconceived notions that break down more and more, I think, along political lines of, of how the world works. And, and Republican worldviews, and then we got Democrat worldviews, and anything that challenges our worldview, we just are increasingly just dispensing of it. Like, it's, it's just fake. It's not true, because it's not from the right source. It's not from my people. It's not from people like me. And I think that if this persists, and, and if it filters into the church, we're going to be just like Naaman. We're only going to let God transform us in the ways we've already decided it's appropriate for Him to transform us. Right? And so for conservative Christians, God's only allowed to tell me to change in terms of you know, resisting the secular culture. Right? And then for progressive Christians, right, God's only allowed to tell me to love the poor more. Right? But who are we to tell God how we're going to be changed? The gospel, the real gospel I'm talking about. It, it does not just confirm everything you already believed. It challenges you. I, and, and I don't care where you are on the political spectrum. Like, the gospel will not always agree with you. I've said this before. If your God always agrees with you, He's almost certainly a figment of your imagination. There's almost no way He's real. The real God has a way of challenging us. And, and Naaman is not digging the challenge right now. It's bad enough for him that he has to take this advice from this messenger. But the message itself is just as maddening. So Naaman was picturing that the prophet would come out and, and he would like pronounce some elaborate prophetic prayer of healing. Something only a great prophet could do, right? Something, you know, worth the effort of coming all this way. But instead, he's told to take a dip or two in the river. 
And Naaman just loses it. But then I love the servant's response. It's so good. Verse 13. Naaman's servant went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you just wash and be cleansed? You see, you see the servant's logic here? So Naaman came all this way. He's got references in his pocket now from two kings. Okay, He's got piles of money. He's an important guy. He's come a long way. He wants a remedy that matches his effort. And all the prophets telling him to do is just take a bath in the nearest river. And he gets all mad at, at this sort of stupid, simple assignment. And, and his servant, who is very perceptive, it says, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, you'd have done it. So here's the problem. Naaman is a doer. Give him a task, and he'll do it. And he'll do it heroically. I mean, his life has been defined by doing everything excellently. He is a very successful guy. He can do pretty much anything you ask him to do. But this cure, this like washing, there's no greatness to it. Um, you know, his servant points out basically like, you know, if the prophet had told you to climb some mountain and go in this cave and slay this dragon and bring me back the skull, you'd have been like, all right, that's more like it. I'll do that. But this solution, just the washing, anybody could do that. Anybody could do that. And name is just, it's just too simple. I've found that this comes up sometimes when I'm explaining the Christian faith to people. So, I'll be talking, and we'll be in like Ephesians 2 or something, we'll say, yeah, you know, we're saved, we're saved through faith. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, uh, but what else? It's faith. You say, yeah, sure, but like, what do I have to do, you know, for God to accept me? And it's like they're skeptical of how simple it is. You just want me to believe? Right? Like, like most good things in this life, we only get after we've proved ourselves. Our world actually can be pretty brutal that way. Because uh, a lot of times, uh, we don't just have to prove like that we work harder than other people. Most of the time, we also need to prove that we've got connections with the right people. Right? It's who you know as well. Naaman is a guy who's actually got both. Uh, He's a hard worker. He's got unbelievable connections. But all he needs to get healed is just to get in that water. And, and it doesn't sound right. It seems like there should be more. Faith seems too cheap, too simple. Like We assume that God must really want us to do something else. You know, I think for some of us, that's something else is like uh, social justice. So, you know, give me some cause 
human trafficking, anti-racism, poverty, whatever. Give me some cause, and I will learn to say the right things and do the right things, and I will be good at that cause. And, and that seems more likely to be what God really wants of us. Right? Or for some of us, that's something else. It's like a culture, right? So, you know, send, send your kids to a Christian school and go to Calvin College and go to church twice on Sunday, and I'm going to do those things. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be good at those things. And, and that seems more like the kind of thing that God would really want. We're skeptical that it could really just be that simple. It's, it's in our human nature to assume God surely wants something else. It won't just be faith that saves us. God must have some other criteria. And it's not that these other things aren't awesome and good. Um, but when they become the criteria for God's acceptance of you, which is very quickly what happens, when they become the criteria for God's acceptance of you, you get yourself in serious trouble. Um, I was thinking about this for myself. Um, there are times when I find myself uh, wanting to impress people with like my spirituality or, or my sacrifice or my, my dedication or my thoughtfulness. And, and some weeks I do pretty good. And uh, I get like pats on the back and a lot of attaboys. And, and I start to think, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, yeah, I mean, these people are pretty lucky to have me. I mean, just, you know, you know. And, and then there's like, there's this half step to the next thought. Which is, you know who else is lucky to have me? Yeah, God's pretty lucky to have me. I'm kind of a catch for him. Right? And you know, maybe, maybe that's fine on good weeks. Right? But then there's bad weeks. And so this has been a bad week for me. It's just been a really crummy week. Maybe you've had a bad week too. Um, I just feel like I've been spinning my wheels a lot and, and I've, I've let a number of people down. And, and suddenly... It's that same half step in the other direction to thinking, you know, maybe, maybe God is as disappointed with me as I am. You see what happened? I, I made God's acceptance of me about my performance, right? About my achievements. I was earning his love because I was such a good guy. It's name and like thinking is what it is. God says to name and just watch. The, the solution is really that simple. So verse 14, he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became like that of a young boy. Dear friends, uh, God doesn't heal, he doesn't he doesn't save us on our terms or in the ways that make us comfortable. You know, Naaman finally got what he needed, but at almost every turn, some other part of himself that he valued needed to die a kind of death. And, and I think that the, the true conversion that we need is, I think it's both the easiest thing you'll ever do I mean, anybody can do it. It's also the hardest. 
The, the things Naaman was used to thinking were to his credit. His connections, his privilege, his wealth, his success. None of those things were the answer. In fact, his attachment to those things often made it harder for him to get to the answer. And so I think the question for us this morning is this. Will we have the humility to just receive this as a gift? Not something that we earn with our accomplishments and our hard work and our credentials and our connections, but just receive this gift. He's offering it to you. Let's pray together.